finally, we decided to post to Hacker News, which we thought was such a long shot. And this demo took off like wildfire. This is version one, a podcast from Code Sandbox about the product development journey of some of the web's most talked about tools and resources from the makers behind them. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Webflow empowers designers worldwide to build professional custom websites in a completely visual canvas with no code. They have over 2 million users and over 100,000 customers across 210 countries. Companies including Dell, Upwork, Zendesk, and Rakuten depend on Webflow to help their marketing and design teams create production-ready, easy-to-maintain websites. To get a sense of how Webflow came to be, you have to know about its CEO and co-founder, Vlad Magdalene. Let's see how his life and early career as a designer helped influence the creation of this revolutionary platform. The year is 1991. The Chicago Bulls won their first NBA championship. Beavis and Butthead premiered on MTV. The Soviet Union also dissolved this year, the same year Vlad and his family left there and came to the United States as refugees. My parents didn't speak the language. We were on welfare for a while as my parents were trying to take like night classes and figure out how to learn English. And my dad had to learn some new trades and trying to make ends meet on the side. One of the things that he realized was a big opportunity was in the United States, there was something called PVC pipes, right? Like these are pipes that are made of plastic and they're really easy to work with and and much more versatile than what we had in Russia, which was just like lead pipes, basically. He decided to make like an import-export business or try to create one. And part of that was taking materials from here and uh, finding clients in Russia and getting them to order them and sort of like shipping them over. But to do that, you had to make catalogs that were in Russian. And this is something my dad tasked me with, like he somehow got his hands on Corel Draw, which was like the early precursor to Illustrator and Figma. And he gave me a job. This was like pre-high school. Uh, I think I was in, in middle school to scan and trace these like pipe diagrams and, and translate everything from English to Russian. So that's where I kind of started to learn graphic design, just just because it was something that my dad needed me to do. Ultimately, that business didn't work out as much you kind of had to have a bunch of connections. But through that process, I learned really how to use like graphic design tools. I would make like business cards and ad designs because I was like one of these kids that was in the church community that knew how to use Corel Draw and Photoshop and go after school and, and work at this print shop basically that had this Yellow Pages product that they put out. And that really taught me to become a designer where I learned like what good looks like and, and kind of got me interested in that creative path. And in the meantime, I started to see opportunities right as I was like finishing high school that a bunch of like I could combine this sort of like graphic design aspect of making really nice looking designs and trying to learn HTML and CSS. Uh, This is sort of like early days of Dreamweaver when the web was starting to become a thing, but it was still sort of like seen as a for a lot of businesses like a novelty or, or more of like a brochure, not something that is like a core piece of your marketing. But that's when I really started working on freelancing on the side to find clients and do like little websites for them. But it that didn't really pick up more earnestly, like in the market in general, where people just saw websites as more than toys until sort of like my earlier college days. 
Vlad's older brother ended up attending California Polytechnic State University, Cal Poly for short, and he got into the computer science program there, but Vlad didn't want to follow that path. He applied to around a dozen or so different schools and decided to go to the Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT. His parents, though, had other plans. My parents were barely making it like everything about college would have had to be loans or, or grants or things like that. So they said, like, we just can't afford to fly you out there. Right. And but couldn't get like a full scholarship. So they said, basically, you have to go to school where your brother goes to school because we're already driving him there every few months. He has a place there. So I went to Cal Poly and I hated it so much. I really, really hated computer science. I, it was just not my jam at the time. And after about nine months, I decided to drop out. Oh, I know that feeling. When I went to college, I dual majored in computer science and computer engineering and told my advisor at the time that I wanted to do web design. He told me that the internet was just a fad, which sounds crazy, but this was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I ended up changing majors because like Vlad, computer science was not my jam either. Vlad ended up moving to San Francisco and enrolled in the Academy of Art University. At the time, like I just felt really strongly about because my dream had become over those nine months struggling with trying to learn how to program and and learn computer science. My dream had become like, how do I get back into my creative roots? And the thing that made the most sense to me at the time was like trying to work at Pixar. Like, how do I get a job at Pixar where I can work on these movies that look so incredible and have this like realism to them? And that's what drew me to go to art school, wanting to learn like visual effects and 3D animation, et cetera. What the school actually ended up being was A, a money pit of like student loan debt, B, like no classes in 3D animation. It was like two years of learning the classic stuff. Like, sculpting, color theory, perspective, animation, like hand-drawn animation. So I spent two years doing that, going like really, really into debt. By the time I took my first 3D animation class in the beginning of the third year, I realized how bad the school's program was at the time, where my teacher was essentially a student who was using a book that was like five years old They didn't actually know the product we're trying to learn, Maya. They were kind of like going through a set of tutorials. And it was somebody that couldn't get a job in industry, right? So it was like this realization of, am I wasting my time? And combined with the fact that a lot of people who had recently graduated from the school were having trouble finding jobs. And just randomly one day when I was still in art school, I ordered this book on ASP.net to learn how to create a web application because there was a product that my friends and I were using called, I forget what it's called at this point, like quick dot or something like that. And it was all about like asynchronous group chat. And I decided to build something like that just because my friends and I were using it. And I was like, Hey, maybe I can create a, this, this application. And that's where I started really falling in love with programming again. I was like, Hey, now it's not just like this theoretical exercise around computer science theory and proofs and learning the structures of programming languages. It was actually something that you could do to create a product out of thin air. Like you write this code, it becomes real, people can use it, you bring it to life. That's when I decided to drop out of art school and move back to Cal Poly and finish working on my computer science degree. This application Vlad created was called Chatterfox. And it allowed people to easily stay in touch with groups of friends, family, or coworkers. Think of it as the pre-web 2.0 equivalent to WhatsApp. Vlad worked on Chatterfox for a number of years while still attending Cal Poly. And during that time, he interned at a local design agency to help make ends meet while also paying off that art school student loan debt. My entire role was to take 
designs from the design department and they had a really creative and awesome design department and write the HTML and CSS and a little bit of SQL to make their designs real in the companies or in this agency's proprietary CMS system. And initially I was kind of seeing as like, all right, I'm just going to get this job. I'm going to clock in, do the code, translate these designs and clock out because that's what everybody else is doing. Not even a few weeks later, like I just saw how frustrating that entire process was, not just for me, but mostly for all the creative folks. I was being paid like minimum wage at the time to do this sort of like internship slash translation. And I saw this invoice where it was over $100,000 for the work that I would do in the course of a week or two for that translation layer. And that included the design part as well, but it really struck me like, hey, the thing that this small team of designers and small team of developers is creating is worth so much to these businesses, yet it's so inefficient the way that it's working. And immediately I thought back to how like the 3D animation and like visual effects industry works. And there you have way less of that translation. Vlad is about to have a breakthrough. I mean, there's many skills involved there, but nobody is doing like the translation from the creative work to like the real production work. And that combination of seeing, hey, wow, there's so, people are willing to pay so much for this work. And I've seen this much, much better way in this similar creative discipline where the creative people are put into a much more closer proximity to the final work that is delivered to customers that why can't something like that exist for web development? It's like, hey, if we create something that is similar to 3D animation and modeling software, but for web design and web creation and sort of remove this middle translation layer, we can actually put a lot more power and a lot more creativity into the hands of creative people and remove a ton of this sort of like friction in the middle. And it's so freaking valuable, like just seeing from what businesses are willing to pay for this stuff, that I'm sure we could create a, a lot of like economic opportunity for uh, if we were to create a product like that. So that's kind of when the original idea for Webflow came to be. And I kind of started working on it on the side. Before I even finished college, I ended up writing my senior project on Webflow on the entire topic of creating like this visual development environment to empower creative people to, to build applications visually instead of writing code directly. And then that started the journey of like multiple kind of failures and false starts uh, to try to get that product off the ground over the years. Now that's dedication. When we return, Vlad goes through the highs and lows of taking Webflow to the next level. Welcome back. Webflow was starting to take shape, but Vlad definitely went through some trial and error before establishing the Webflow that you and I know of today. Initially, the idea was for a product. It was kind of the big dream, kind of imagining the products that exist in 3D animation land and just knowing that like, hey, there has to be a better way for web application development too. But the multiple attempts at trying to start it and build it as a product, I gave up multiple times. It's going to be too hard to build this product by myself. I started working on it more on as like a services plus product kind of thing. Like how do I build a product by freelancing on the side and building more and more complex sites for clients? And like over time, 
add more to this sort of like secret product I'm building in the background and eventually hopefully have something that can like build more and more like a higher and higher percentage of like the projects that I'm taking on as a freelancer. Eventually it will turn into a full-fledged product. This method was a bit of a double-edged sword. The variety of clients meant ending up with lots of potential features, but only specific use cases. I have this client that is a snowboard manufacturer and so they need like e-commerce and design customization and this other customer that's like a newspaper so they need like tons of different content and a lot of collaboration features so it would build like both of those things kind of in isolation but then i would get another client that's like a dentist that needed a simple design and the product wasn't capable of yet i kind of had to do all that all that manually so there are drawbacks to that even though over time it helped me understand more and more what the core functionality of like a more mass applicable product would be. Building initial traction for Webflow was a little difficult, mainly because this wasn't Vlad's first time trying to get this idea off the ground. So there were like three other times that I incorporated Webflow before this current one. And none of those times really had any real traction. So two of those times I was just by myself. I never really launched any sort of product in, uh, outside of having clients that were unbeknownst to them using it on the back end. And then one of those times uh, I tried to start, this was like 2007, 2008, with a couple coworkers at Intuit where we actually got some funding. But this last iteration, starting in 2012, the traction we had early was like, Again, unbeknownst to anybody, it was just like clients that Sergi, my brother and I, who ended up being one of my co-founders, we just kept doing these sort of client projects on the side where we would find a client, he would do the design, I would implement it in this sort of hacked together version of Webflow in the background that was sort of like mixed in with WordPress and then launch that site for them. But then we realized like that wasn't going to scale. Like we actually had to build a product from the ground up and we had to focus on things that were just table stakes. That would be something that is totally different than anything that exists at the time. And what we realized, this was like late 2012, that the thing that nobody had really cracked during that time was responsive design. Vlad had picked a pretty thorny issue to try and solve with Webflow, but this ended up being a breakthrough. He started from scratch in this new direction with renewed enthusiasm, but ran into more issues along the way. So we initially thought that we we're going to show this product off and everyone's going to knock down our doors and everyone's going to ditch like Dreamweaver or code, et cetera. And we even paid to do this pretty expensive Kickstarter video to sort of explain the concept at the last minute after like draining almost twelve dollars or $13,000 into that process. We found out that Kickstarter doesn't allow for hosted products or hosted services. It either has to be downloadable or it has to be like a physical product that you, you ship to somebody. So it was a complete wasted effort. We thought we we're going to get a bunch of traction that way. And then we tried to apply to YC and got rejected because it was mostly just a concept and um, a small little kind of video where we could demo what it would be. But it wasn't enough to show that there was anybody really interested in it. Six months later, we had no cash going into personal debt at this point, taking out credit card loans and still didn't have a product. And, and Sergi and I sat down and did the math on how long it would take us, given our product development speed at that time, to actually launch the product in a usable way where people can sign up. They can create one page. They could publish that page, et cetera. And we knew that that was going to be like at least another year. 
Another year. That just wasn't time that Vlad and Sergei had to make this sustainable, especially after so many other setbacks. They had even considered going back to their former jobs so they could continue developing Webflow on the side. After a month and a half of deliberating, they came up with a solution. We decided to really scope things down and create not a product, but what we call the playground. And you can actually still see it today. It's on playground.webflow.com. If you go there, you'll see like the original thing that we built as the demo. It's usable so you could see the idea, but it's not an actual product. You can't like create a page with it. You can't, you can only like do some light tweaks. And then when you refresh all that, they're all gone. It's more of an idea. We made that call because like we had no other choice. We just didn't have the time or runway to be able to build the full product. They posted the demo on Reddit, on Dig and on design forums, but it just didn't get the feedback they needed. Finally, we decided to post to Hacker News, which we thought was such a long shot because here we are like creating a product that's that's meant to abstract away code and get people to write less code. And we're point like we're posting it in a forum where it's mostly coders and hackers and people who write code for a living. And this demo took off like wildfire. That's really the first time that we got anything that we would call as traction. It wasn't actually people using the product per se. It was just people signing up. We had this kind of like lead capture form that said, hey, when we have an actual product, put in your email. We'll let you know when we launch something. Having a bunch of signups on a waiting list was enough to go back to Y Combinator and other startup accelerators and say like, hey, we have some idea of traction. That was enough to get a small bit of investment from Y Combinator. And that's when we got to work to building an actual product that people could like sign up and log in and create an account and actually create a web page and publish it, et cetera. But that didn't happen until about a year after we started. It really was that influx of interest around people signing up for our waiting list that provided a lot of the traction that kept us going. Never underestimate the power of a good email list. After the break, Webflow version one. We're back. Vlad has persevered through a number of obstacles and challenges to get Webflow out into the world. That drive was brought on by a change in mindset. What we launched at first, we felt it was nowhere even close to version one. We had this idea in our minds that why would anybody on this wait list pay us for a product that doesn't have basic features like blogging, right? Or basic features like being able to add like a homepage and an about page or basic features like a contact form. We didn't have any of those things. Our idea was that when we have some level of feature parity with like a Squarespace or a WordPress, that's when we have a version one. What YC helped us understand, they actually like in a really painful way, they were like, you need to launch and you need to charge something in the next three months. Otherwise you're breaking the spirit of like the entire program. And for us, we were like so embarrassed to launch and to start charging for a product that didn't have all those things that we thought had to be part of V1. We're just so convinced that nobody was going to pay for it. And to a certain degree, we were kind of right because we had this this massive wait list of 30,000 people or so that said like, hey, I'm interested in what you guys are building. And when we launched, we thought for sure we were going to convert a very significant portion of those people. But when we launched, 
it was like some dismal sub percent of 1% that actually converted to paying customers. Here's the thing. That was like the best decision we ever made. For their customers, Webflow was perfect for what they needed right now. Personally, Webflow helped me land a lot of client work back when I ran my own studio because it just made building components so easy and the code was clean and readable. It just worked. Vlad listened to his customers and continued improving Webflow. That slowly started expanding into more functionality. And it wasn't until late 2015 that we launched our CMS. This is like two and a half years later, which is what I originally would have called a V1. That was like a huge learning for me. It was like, there's more value to what you might be building than what you might realize. You really can only learn that from users. And it's almost unfair to keep that value away from people because you're trying to work on something that you believe is even bigger. Any final words, Vlad? Deliver customer value sooner. I think we've made that mistake too often where we wait like a year to launch something because together it all makes sense. But we have this story in our heads that like, the smaller parts of it are less valuable. And we learn over and over that as you have them, if you put them into users' hands, into customers' hands, they actually benefit from it a lot more than you think. Thank you so much for listening to version one. For more information about the show, visit us at codesandbox.io slash version one. That's all one word. Or you can send us a tweet at codesandbox. This podcast is produced by Maurice Cherry with engineering and editing from Resonate Recordings. The song you're listening to now, that's I Don't Mind from Particle House, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Vlad Magdalene and Misha Vaughn from Webflow, and of course, the entire team at Code Sandbox. I'm Maurice Cherry, and this is Version 1. See you next time.